Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week at 11 o'clock on March 23rd, which is, among other things, the 8th anniversary of the signing of the Affordable Care Act. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast. Things might have changed by the time you hear this. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning. Margo Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. Good morning, ladies. Happy birthday, ACA, and glad we all survived the spring snow. So we have a government funding bill. Almost. After weeks of will they or won't they, Congress produced a spending bill sometime in the middle of the night last night uh, that will keep the lights on at least through September 30th, the Assuming end of the, the fiscal year. Yes, it. I'm getting to that. <laughs> <laughs> at this moment, President Trump is threatening to veto it over the lack of funding for his border wall. A veto, I think, does not seem likely. Do we all agree that does not seem likely? Yes. Strong yes. agree. Yeah. We think that by the time we get out of this room, this will have been surpassed by something else to raise our eyebrows but, You never know. You never know. So we will talk about what's not in the bill separately in a minute, notably the individual insurance market stabilization bill that was expected to catch a ride on this omnibus spending bill. But first, what's actually in there that's notable for health? There's there's a lot more money, right? There is. Yeah. And NIH got a lot more money and they've been targeted by this administration previously. So I think that was a bit of a a targeted targeted for cuts. Yeah, I'm sorry. And so I think that was a bit of a morale booster um, at NIH there and and opioid money. That's right. Was um, a big deal, too. They're trying to come at this from a lot of different angles to get after the the opioid crisis and uh, and the problem has been they have all these the ideas they being Washington generally and they haven't had the money they don't think to be able to implement them and the CDC got a got a big boost right CDC got money and, and I forgot the number that Trump had wanted to cut it but it was a lot and they got a boost uh, two other related things on opioids and CDC uh, Trump for two years in a row has tried to uh, either completely or mostly defund the office of the quote drugs are Congress said no 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 we're keeping it and they funded that and another thing that hadn't gotten much attention um, uh, Dan Diamond on uh, my staff had broken this a few weeks ago is that Trump had wanted to really slash NIOSH, which is the occupational safety, and they do a lot of mine safety, coal mines. Um, Trump had wanted to really slash their budget and then take them out of the CDC and move them to the NIH, which would have been sort of an odd fit. And Congress said, no, 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 we're leaving that as is as well. So those were... uh, two things that the health world paid attention to. And I know we'll talk about this when we get to extra credits, but there, there's also language in the bill that sort of weakens it, the, it, no, the, the ban does. on gun research yeah, at it, CDC. It does. And also um, community health centers got funded. Oh, that's right. So, 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 so I mean, basically, the, the story of the spending bill here is that everybody got more money, that Republicans got more money for defense, Democrats got more money for what they call domestic discretionary, HHS got a big boost. This, this was not the budget that the Republicans... $10 billion. And then, um, you know, every, all the deficit hawks are under the bed crying. That's true. But, and, and Mick Mulvaney, maybe, too. I mean, we talked about the president's budget when it came out, and I think, you know, 
the president's budget is always a largely ceremonial document because the president doesn't have control over uh, spending. But this does seem to be a pretty extreme case where Congress just paid no attention at all to the president's directives and really had its own priorities and its own funding levels that it wanted to achieve. And so uh, they're just in many cases, some of which Joanne noted, uh, are just these tremendous differences between what the White House says that it wants and what Congress decided that it was going to do on funding. Yeah, it was kind of impressive. I, I watched the Mulvaney press conference yesterday and said, where he came out and said, the president's going to sign this bill. And somebody said, why? Because the president asked for all these cuts and there's all these increases. He says, because it meets his priorities. And everybody, I think, in that audience was going, Okay. <laughs> so Right. And it wasn't, I mean, the, the, you know, every year the president offers a budget and every year we all write it's DOA on the Hill. But I mean, this time it was DOR, AOR. And <laughs> also by a, a Republican, I mean, this is a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Although not by much. Not by much, but it is a Republican House and a Republican Senate and it was dead, 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 dead. I mean, it wasn't just dead. It was like irrelevant. Although, I mean, it's important to point out that, that it's not, even though it's, it's numerically a Republican Senate, they're in charge of all the committees, they don't have 60 votes. Spending bills, unlike the budget bills that we were dealing with last year that needed 51, spending right, bills need 60, which means that in order to get anything through, they need some Democrats. But other than defense, they were really were not championing the same priorities that President Trump has laid out. I mean, maybe opioids you can... Spending cuts are really tough. I mean, all of these members have employees of these agencies in their districts. How do you ask them to go and and cut them? It's easy for Trump to do. It's really hard for the appropriators to do that. Yeah, but they went in the other direction this year. Right, the This is the, the... yeah, Most, this was the yeah. this was the pent up. Everybody had wanted to spend yes, this money yeah. for the last God, almost probably since twenty eleven. Twenty eleven was that's the, when I they think, did the last big budget deal. I think all of those arguments also applied when Obama was president, right? Um, you know, it's difficult for appropriators. They've got people back in their district who care about the cuts. Uh, you know, you needed Democrats in order to pass them. And yet I do feel like somehow the fact that there is a Republican president has taken some of the pressure off of the kind of austerity minded forces in the congressional leadership. And they just feel like, OK, we'll just fund the stuff that we want to fund. It, it feels like can. a different dynamic. It's a get it while we can. Moment. <laughs> also, I mean, somebody this week, I can't remember who wrote a story to the effect of deficits only matter when Democrats are in charge. That's essentially where we are. All right. Well, let's talk about the thing that didn't make it into the bill, uh, which is the uh, the what was a bipartisan effort to uh, stabilize the Affordable Care Act. And it sort of turned partisan this week before it went kapoof. What happened? Everything. I mean, they put they argued about absolutely everything. There, there were two big parts to it. One is the um, the stabilization part. Uh, or reinsurance part, and uh, that had been somewhat that was, that was money to help stabilize, plans right. pay for really expensive. Like if you're a health plan and you're participating in the Obamacare markets, and you just end up with these you know million dollar patients that you would get made not whole but cushioned, and um, it, and it had been somewhat bipartisan in the Senate, and never all that never had, was always riskier in the House, but um, sort of the combination of Obamacare politics plus abortion language made it toxic this week, and it melted down. I remember the first time that we talked about a sort of bipartisan congressional Obamacare stabilization last package. August. So yeah, yeah, it was it was last August. It was prior to Trump's decision to stop funding the cost sharing reductions in the Obamacare marketplaces, and that's a complicated thing. It had cascading results, but uh, that was sort of the moment. And I think that once that moment passed, it sort of set this. It just changed the whole dynamics around this issue. I think there was a real concern, a bipartisan concern. 
that if something wasn't done, that the president might take away this funding and that there would just be a calamity and it would be terrible for everyone and that Congress really needed to step in. They needed to fix this problem. And because of the bipartisan dynamics, there was going to be some give and take on both sides. There would be some kind of compromise package that everyone could live with that would offset the really bad, scary stuff that people were worried about and that would also, you know, hand out some goodies to both sides so that they could vote for it. And then they didn't get it done in time. Trump did eliminate these cost-sharing reduction payments, and the really calamitous, scary stuff didn't happen. Things kind of stabilized. Now, you know, there's problems, and there's there's some some worse things about the new equilibrium and some better things about the new equilibrium, which we've talked about. But, like, once that urgency was gone, I think the sort of urgency for everyone to get together and come to agreement on this really controversial law, just it, it just sort of disappeared. I think over time, the Democrats cared a lot less about the cost-sharing reduction subsidies because they saw that the markets were kind of okay. And also the people were getting great bargains, some of them, which, which Margot, you wrote about at some length. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Republicans got a little bit less hung up on the um, state flexibility, these 1332 state innovation waivers. They were going to uh, loosen up the requirements so states had more ability to do it. But then the Trump administration went ahead and did all these other regulatory things that do allow more flexibility in the kinds of plans that are offered. So we talked about short-term limited duration plans that don't have a lot of the Obamacare rules and uh, association health plans. There have been a, the individual mandate has gone away. There have been a number of things that have been achieved uh, through executive power that have have dealt with some of the issues that that flexibility was supposed to deal with. And then, you know, I think there has always been this sort of lingering issue about abortion, which I know, Julie, you should talk about because you are the world's expert on this, uh, having spent the last couple of weeks really looking at it. But I think that got sort of stuck into this package and became just kind of in, in a sticking point that no one was really willing to compromise on. And again, because I just think I think on both sides, the urgency was gone. There was no need to strike a compromise. And there was sort of this toxic thing in the mix that made it impossible for there well, to be agreement. Really, they were only, I think, still even considering it or, or, or maybe pretending to consider it is because they told Susan Collins that they were going to take this up and that she would get her vote. And I think as a condition that, of passing of the tax bill. Right, right. Yes. Um, and so and McConnell I, came out on the floor. Leader McConnell he did. said. He that, said, you know, <laughs> so it, it felt like a very real promise. And I think something that she expected and, and not just because he made a promise, but because you need Susan Collins in the future for you know many things. Who knows what what will come up? But um, and she's an important moderate Republican vote. And so, I, you know, I, I, I will be curious to kind of hear from her knowing that, you know, that's not well, going to happen. You know, she she went to the floor yesterday. Actually, all the Republicans. And, and what surprises me uh, about what happened this week was how partisan it became, yeah. how fast. Suddenly the Republicans on Monday dropped their own bill that had, yes, it had a, it would have extended um, abortion restrictions to places where it had they had not gone in the Affordable Care Act. And as people, certainly I remember way too vividly Abortion almost hung up the ACA, both passing the House and then again when it had to when the Senate bill had to pass the House. It was, you it know, was it was last night. It was what, almost in, in, it, it was almost in February or whatever bill. it was. Yeah, it was, was March. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, Mark has written a book about it. Yes, <laughs> yes, former congressman, former congressman from Michigan, um, one of the, the leading uh, longtime chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus, a co-chair of the Democratic chair when there were lots of pro-life Democrats in the House. Um, interestingly, there are fewer pro-life Democrats in the House 
House now because Three. they were all beaten <laughs> by Republicans. That's why the, these are the swing districts we're talking about. So when the, the Republicans have control, they have the districts that otherwise contain these these conservative uh, Democrats. But it was, you know, it, it was not that much of a shock that the idea of more abortion restrictions came up. But I think what was still a shock to me was that when they couldn't resolve that, they the Republicans did a partisan bill and then they said that it's being held up by the Democrats. And therefore, if premiums go up in the fall, it's going to be the Democrats fault. And there was an entire hour on the floor of this yesterday, followed by an entire hour of press conference on Wednesday. And an entire deluge of email we woke up to today. That's so, right. yeah. yeah, it got it got I mean, that's the rule, though, right? I mean, that's where the ACA has typically looked for the last eight years today. The the brief sort of mirage of bipartisanship in the in the turned out to be a barrage, you know, mirage in the Senate alone was actually the exception. They had when we, votes there for about five minutes. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, um, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, to their credit, actually are able to work together in a bipartisan way on a number of issues, including education, including the FDA, in an era where nobody is actually getting along particularly well. I mean, she's not a moderate. She's, you know, the two of them actually do manage to maintain a reasonably constructive and un, a more constructive than most bipartisan relationships in the Senate. And it, it so, but it ended up being looking like everything else this week. It really, when it collapsed, it collapsed ugly. So is this dead? It's probably. We're not. I don't see another way that it could, you know, what's it going to go on? Because I don't think it goes by itself in the Senate. Um, and yeah, it had to the, be part of some kind of big deal this week right. where everybody gave and, get, you know, we said last week, if it happened, it would have happened because there was this huge amount of horse trading and there were no horses. Just, <laughs> I don't know who the champion is for it. So Lamar Alexander, I think, really has been very committed to this for a long time. I think, you know, he and, and Patty Murray held a bunch of hearings. They brought in expert witnesses. I mean, I think he cares about this issue. He's trying to get to the right answer. He wants it to be a bipartisan compromise. But, uh, you know, the real reason that it even got to the floor at all is because of this uh, promise that was made to Susan Collins. That dynamic is resolved because that promise has been made. And it doesn't really seem like the Democrats are looking to make a deal anymore. So I just don't see, aside from just like, what is the legislative thing that this would hitch a ride on? I just don't understand, like, what is the motivation that would bring this back? Now, maybe there could be some horrible... Uh, bad news around premiums next year. Uh, certainly after next year's elections, maybe there's Democrats in Congress and they want to do a different kind of stabilization package that they think they can get past the Trump administration. I mean, there, it's not I don't think like Obamacare stabilization is absolutely dead. But I think that this this version this of it, this this effort, this kind of mix of policies and this bipartisan dream uh, is probably uh, dead for at least a while. I was going to, it made me think that maybe the long shot, very long shot wild card is that the Congress went home for two weeks once they passed the omnibus bill. And we've seen this before where they go home and their constituents start yelling at them. And I don't think we know where this is going to stick yet. I don't think we know if it will be on Democrats or on Republicans or or both of them hear enough that they feel like they have to do this bipartisan thing. I don't see this happening. I'm just saying they're going home yeah, for two weeks. Anybody, I, mean, and... I don't think anybody's gearing up to, to, to yeah. you know, storm the town meetings. Right. Yeah. Say, we haven't we heard want it. Obamacare we haven't stabilization. Heard it like before. Yeah. It hasn't not like the last time. But, you know, just curious what they what they hear when they go. Yes, home. I'm, but I, I think am. that it's I think how people feel about the Affordable Care Act is so baked into their political identity that. You know, if you're a Democrat and you're going to vote Democratic next December, November, 
and you you know you like the ACA. You may not love it, but you like it. And if you're a Republican, you don't like the ACA. So it's like hard to pull out um, motivating healthcare is a motivating factor right now because it's so aligned with if you are a Republican or if you are a Democrat. It's like hard to say. Well, this is the issue. I mean, it's sort of like become yeah. But midterms are about turnout. It's about activating right, your base. Right. But so. I'm not. But I think I mean, that it's still. The fight over repeal, which did activate the base, um, as we saw in the town halls last year, and it's, it prevented a repeal. We saw a real activation in grassroots. Re- I mean, that's we didn't expect it not to be repealed, and it, and that's why it wasn't. And you know how whether that's the issue. I mean, the, the is news so cycle esoteric. is twenty four <laughs> seconds, right? It's what is going to motivate. It's all about Trump. It might be about guns. I mean, that's certainly what's in the news this weekend. It, it, it you know, who knows what the foreign policy, you know, situation is going to be. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, feel like in it's March so I can yeah. predict what's going to turn out voters in I November. Also, I just think this this stuff is really technical. It's a little bit esoteric. We're far from when the premiums come out, and I just don't know how. Like it's really, it would just be really surprising to me if voters are showing up to town hall meetings and being like, you know what I would really like is reinsurance. (laughs) (laughs) No, but they. But I think repeal, like they understood repeal, right? Repeal is like we're gonna make a huge change to the way the whole system works. This is like, I'm really disappointed you didn't make this tweak on the edge. Nobody is gonna come out to a town meeting and start talking about 1332 guide rail, you know, guide rails. It's gonna be like my premiums are going up. What are you gonna do about it? And Republicans are gonna think Republicans can fix it, and Democrats are gonna think. That Democrats can maybe fix it, and Democrats may be on to single payer by then. You know, we just don't. Know. You know, I, I just don't. I mean, I think it it has to do with sort of general, and it's all going to get tied up with Trump. So, you know, do do I see? I mean, I think that Anna's right. I mean, if you start hearing it from voters, they would reconsider. But I'm not sure that it's going to be articulated I mean, I- in a way that, as Margot said. You know, general anger about health care costs that we know. We know that Republicans and Democrats don't like the cost of health care. I don't think any of us around this table are particularly happy about the cost of health care. I don't know anybody who except the people who maybe are earning We're the money. a lot of money right. from it. Yeah. Um, but how that plays out into congressional action as opposed to reelect all those Republicans and we'll finally finish it. Um, I don't know. All right. Well, speaking of people who make money from health care, let's talk about drugs. Drugs. (laughs) Um, The the House managed this week on its second try to pass a right to try bill that sponsors say will make it easier for people with terminal illnesses to access experimental therapies. And opponents say will create false hope. Um, For the first time since I've been watching this issue, which I think is more than two years now, we've seen a serious effort to oppose it, not only from patient groups, but from the last four heads of the FDA. So my question for you guys is what took so long for actual opposition to emerge and what might it mean for this bill as it has to go back to the Senate? Well, it went back to the Senate at one o'clock this morning and did not move. So, And, and uh, Senator Johnson, who is the chief sponsor in the Senate, what he was saying at one o'clock in the morning, and I don't know what he's saying now that it's 11, um, he said he now he wants the House to take the Senate bill. No, yeah. He he so I mean that's what you know, I mean it's it's gonna play out over the next few weeks. But Anna, you've been covering this a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm curious as to, you know, why I, I was I've been waiting for the opposition, but right. it, it just never sort of happened until I mean, did they think it was real? Is that why we finally saw it? I real? think that's why you finally saw it. I know, you know, it's right to try has sort of been a, a 
a buzzword, but not something that was actually going to happen for a long time. And it's, you know, the FDA and sort of that crowd has always been against it. The regulators um, have never really taken to that because they Although they want to extremely careful right. to not I mean yeah. uh, you know well, Peggy Hamburg and now um, uh, Scott Gottlieb have both been we want to make sure that people have access to that people with terminal illnesses have access to therapies and you know we have this process and we've streamlined this process and 99% of the people who apply through this process you know get or get approval for the medication I mean the real right. roadblock is the drug companies right right I think they they aren't against people getting experimental medications if they need it. The FDA is not. They just want the process to be the process that they have in place. And like you said, they do approve most of the requests, almost all of them, to get these medications. Um, But it's the drug makers who have a lot of or feel like they have a lot of liability in this issue. And so they're afraid, what if someone dies while they're taking this and they're not part of a clinical trial, but does it suddenly affect our clinical trial they results? badly on the drug. Right. And or, you know, does somebody sue them because it didn't work or because they didn't get the drug even is kind of is a fear of theirs. So they, that was kind of one of the negotiating points as this has been going forward as the House has tried to, you know, figure out something that, that can pass is that, you know, you haven't seen the the drug makers come out hard against it as either. Nobody nobody wants to say patients shouldn't have medication. You know, they want to say let's figure out how to do it the best way that we can, the way that helps us the most as well. And you know, they so they they talked about these liability issues. They got some of them kind of included in the bill, and that's why you know at least you know pharma would be hoping that the the Senate is going to pass the House version, not the other way around. I think we need, I think we might have to, to listeners who haven't been following this carefully. I think we need to step back a second. There's two kinds of access to experimental drugs being talked about. The FDA, as Anna was just talking about, as Julie was talking about, the FDA has a process. It has a technical name that people call compassionate use. And they've improved it. And maybe they've improved it partly because the pressure from the right to tie grad. It's very cumbersome. Right. So they've streamed on it. They've made it easier. And they're approving more things. Nobody is, as Anna said, nobody is against trying to help people who have no options. The second stream that's been going is this right to try, which is to allow people to, them or their doctor, to request an experimental medicine outside the realm of the FDA. So that's it, that there'd be two separate um, streams, one um, through the FDA, one outside the FDA. The Goldwater Institute, which is a libertarian think tank in Arizona, in Arizona has been pushing right to try for a couple of years. That's where we are now. And they got, got through, it through, what, 35 states or something? 38 states. Mm-hmm. But people aren't getting access in the states. I mean, that's to be, I mean, so they say they need the federal one to give oomph to the state efforts. Um, the, the, I think the reason there was, I think there was opposition behind the scenes. I think that I don't think you saw a lot of opposition because, like, what kind of lawmaker wants to come out and say, no, I don't want this dying child to have access to an experimental cancer drug? It looks terrible whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, right? And people don't understand the way it's being framed that there is this other system, right? And and so it's being portrayed as that that without this right to try law, people don't have hope. And Congress is preventing, and the, FDA, you know, the evil FDA is preventing hope. So it's being sold as... You know, it's being sold as something much more black and white than it actually is. So there has been behind the scene push. That's why it did take a long time in the Senate. It did pass the Senate with unanimously again because people don't really like it. Didn't want to come out against 
did. But, but with added, a lot of safety. They added a lot of safety but stuff. But also the there's Senate a feeling summer. that it doesn't do that much because, I mean, you know, some people right. have called it the right to beg because you still have to go to the drug company. And drug companies say it's not just the liability issues and the will this mess up our clinical trial issues. For some of these really expensive biologic drugs, they just don't have any extra. Yeah, they don't it's have just, a lot I of mean, supply. I mean, they, they're making enough for their clinical trial and that's it. So if you don't qualify for the clinical trial, there's just there's nothing there even if they did want to to provide it. So then we saw it get through the um, Senate sort of, it was revised last summer, it got through unanimously on a voice vote last summer, um, speedily, I mean, when, and then it went to the House where we thought it would be slam dunk, given the momentum coming in the Senate, and instead it took seven or eight months. It went through the Senate, excuse me, the House on Wednesday, and then they tried to finalize it, again, with more Scott Gottlieb, but the FDA has, has insisted on some changes and or has influenced Congress in thinking about changes. Um, it did get through the Senate, excuse me, House pretty partisan, more, much more partisan on, on Wednesday, flipped back to the Senate. It was approximately 1 a.m. I forgot exactly what time it was. It all sort of blurs. And, and it did not go through last night, so this morning. So it'll come back after the recess, whether it's the House or the Senate or exactly what it looks like. I do think at the end of the day it passes. Joanne, do you think it was an, an objection in the, the Senate because of the bill itself, or is like there's some more horse trading on something else going on? I think on? it's trying to – I mean, I think that the Democrats do see this going through. They already voted for it. Um, I think they want to tweak it and pull it a little bit more toward a little bit more regulatory, FDA, patient reporting, whatever they want more language, you know, the reporting language, that if something goes wrong, that, you know, it's it becomes useful for the research. Um, I'm not exactly sure what they, whether they want the House bill or what, I don't know exactly what language they want. I think they do see it as passing and they want to improve it a little bit. And then, you know, I, I'd be surprised if it doesn't get through by the end of this Congress. Yeah. All right. Well, well, while we are talking about the FDA, we started out last week with the FDA's announcement that it plans to reduce allowable levels of nicotine in, I believe the phrase is, combustible tobacco products. Um, this week, the FDA announced it's going to look at tobacco flavorings with the aim of deterring tobacco use among younger people. And actually, there was even some more news this morning. Um, for an administration with a decidedly anti-regulatory focus, that's an awful lot of proposed regulation. What is going on at the FDA, Anna? <laughs> Well, I think it's been really interesting to watch the FDA under Scott Gottlieb um, because, you know, people were thinking he would just come in and deregulate everything. Um, and maybe on, on some angles he has, but on tobacco, he felt very strongly that, you know, something needs to be done, that smoking is killing people, that the FDA was given these powers to regulate tobacco in 2009 and, you know, hadn't been using them to the best of their ability. And, and you know, watching this agency over those years, it has sort of been, you know, it's something else. The FDA also does food and drugs and medical devices. And then I was like, here's tobacco. Go figure that out, too. So it's certainly taken them a while um, to get up and running. But um, it was unexpected, certainly, for to see the FDA say, we want to reduce nicotine in cigarettes. Um and then, you know, to go even further and say, we might actually think about banning menthol and we might actually think about getting rid of flavors and all other kinds of tobacco. Um, and I, I think that, you know, oh, and then this morning where they were talking about the premium cigars, um, you know, that they they might end up regulating those as, as well. Um, I will say that the industry is it's kind of ready for this. They knew that something was probably going to happen. Um, and so there's a little bit of that going on where they had they didn't know when by any means um, exactly, but they knew 
that nicotine was something that the FDA was eventually going to take a closer look at. And so they've been, um, you see some of the biggest companies, Altria and Philip Morris. If you go, I think it's Philip Morris's website, it actually says something about a, um, a, like a, a smoke-free future. Um, which is unbelievable, right? But they um, they're they're trying to do things like heat, not burn products. Um, vaping. That vaping is yeah, vaping is one too. My and then, favorite weird word. <laughs> well, there's a new one is Icos, which is the <laughs> it's the uh, it's their middle ground. Though it's not an e-cigarette, and it's not a um, it's not a cigarette, but it's sort of in the middle, and it heats the tobacco instead of you know using your your lighter, you put it in this little heating device, and supposedly that reduces the toxins that are released by it. Um, and they're trying to go through the FDA and get a label that would say this is less risky than smoking, and that would be huge for them. And that would actually help them continue to dominate the tobacco space. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a there's a lot kind of going on behind the scenes where industry is is getting was getting ready for this. But I mean, I think potentially the end game of this series of regulations, if they become finalized, which, you know, one thing that's interesting is that, uh, like, this is a very slow rollout. So, you know, Scott Gottlieb had a speech a couple of months ago where he said, we're looking at this. And now what they've done out is they've put out a bunch of notices of advance notice of rulemaking. So yeah. they, they don't even have a rule proposal. Right. They're just like, we're going to have a regulation about this. It's coming. But that is the official start of the process. Right. But I'm just saying this is like this is like a slowly unrolling process. But if we assume that they get to the end that they're describing and it seems like they're ready for it. I mean, they basically want to put traditional cigarettes that you that burn and create smoke out of business. I mean, the the combination of these regulations will essentially mean the end of traditional cigarette smoking in the United States, probably. And that is a huge deal. It is. I mean, this is going to be... Margaret's right. I mean, it's, we all laugh when we use the word huge nowadays, but it, this is, <laughs> it's huge. I mean, we're going to look, we could very well look back and see, you know, the anti-smoking is what now, 50, 60 years old, the early 60s, 63, 64. When was the Surgeon General's report? I think it was 60, 65 or 66. Whatever. So it's mid-60s. The, the, um, I think it was a little earlier, actually, but whatever. It, it's, it's years, decades. Um, we've certainly seen increased regulation and warning labels and everything else. But this is, Margo's right, this is the beginning of the end for smoking as we know it. It may take years, and she also very wisely pointed out, in the United States, because as the cigarette makers have come under pressure in this country, they've expanded their markets overseas. But there's also, to me, one of the things that's really interesting is if you think about who was in the FDA and in the public health community in the Obama administration, it was a number of people who were very concerned about tobacco and tobacco-related illness. It wasn't like the Obama administration didn't care about this issue, but in some ways they, well, they were... they got the bill passed in the first place. Right. They got the bill passed in the first place, but I think that they were really worried about the new threat of e-cigarettes. So there are these new products that contain nicotine. You don't smoke them. You inhale a vapor that contains nicotine and some other chemicals. And Hence the, hence the term vaping. Hence the term vaping. There's another one that we got it, yeah. With a J, Julie or something? Uh, yes. Yeah. That, well, that's one brand. That's a brand. Um, but I think it's slightly different. It is slightly different. For the first, I mean, I've been a parent a long time, and this is the first time I ever got a notice, a public health notice from a school about middle school. Mine's in high school, but we middle schoolers and these these devices that the parents might not even know what they are, that they are various forms. We did a story yeah. on that this week. I'll, pu- I'll put that up with our extra credits. Yeah. So this is a product. This is a new product. It's very unregulated. It There is some evidence that young people, well, smoking rates among teenagers have gone way down. It appears that the the use of these products among young people has increased. 
And the long-term health effects are not very well known. We don't really know what happens. You know, we, putting things in your lungs generally is not good, but it is clear that these products do not contain the most dangerous cancer-causing chemicals in traditional cigarette smoke. So the public health community is really divided because some of them feel like, A, we can't trust the tobacco companies. They've proven themselves again and again to be untrustworthy. B, do we really want to start a new generation of people addicted to nicotine that they're getting through this through their lungs that may cause long-term health problems? And then I think there's another group of public health officials and and experts, and I think Scott Gottlieb is one of them, who say, this product may not be perfect and this product may contain some risks, but we know it is so much safer than traditional cigarettes. And so we should be willing to accept some of these risks in exchange for the benefits of trying to convert more people from traditional cigarettes to e-cigarettes. And what I just said is a really controversial statement, but I think it underlies this set of policies. You know, even in but the... It's, it's the same harm reduction model that we talk about with opioids yeah, and with other with drugs. Lots, you know, in the public health community right. in general... Uh, but it's for the, the, smokers. The it's term, for, the term right. of art is harm reduction. And so the idea is let's have needle exchange for... Uh, injection drug users because they may still inject drugs, but then they'll be less likely to get diseases that they get from dirty needles. That's like one example. There's a million examples in the public health literature. For various reasons, I think in tobacco, there has been a suspicion of these quote unquote less harmful tobacco delivery devices. And I think this administration and this FDA is less scared. So there was one interesting thing in the the advanced notice of of rulemaking uh, on flavors where the FDA said... We think that flavors are really bad in traditional cigarettes. We know that they help addict children. And we know that menthol is particularly popular among African-Americans, heavily marketed to them, and may contribute to the higher rate of smoking in black communities. They want to ban flavors in cigarettes. But they said, we know that the flavors in these e-cigarettes, which include things like bubblegum and like unicorn hair, and like, I mean, there's these are clearly being deliberately marketed towards children, that... They're uh, tobacco frappuccinos. (laughs) Right. They said, you know, he said, we know that these flavors probably do induce more young people to vape, but we are not sure if we should have the same regulatory approach for them because we also know that the flavors seem to help some current smokers make the transition to this other thing, technology, which has like a slightly different experience for them. It's not even technically tobacco, is it? It's just nicotine delivery. Right. Well, I think it's derived from tobacco. It's derived. Nicotine's derived right. from the, the tobacco. The public health so debate is about whether this is better, whether adult smokers are better off stopping using cigarettes or cigars or whatever and switching to these e-devices. The public health debate is still like, even if you, if you, if, if the public health community eventually reaches consensus, and it, I think it is building, actually, that it is better for the smoker, the traditional smoker, to use one of these products instead, there's there's a lot of worry. Nobody thinks it's good for new people to start. Exactly. There's nobody in the public health community who's saying, okay, kids, go ahead. They're worried about the marketing. They're worried about the social acceptance you're seeing among kids. They're worried about that, like, the, you know what I got for parents. Yeah. This is what it looks like. And if you didn't, you know, if you think it's like a computer device, no, 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 it's a, it's a tobacco device. Um there's no there's a there's quite a bit of concern that we're just at the brink you no know, as we bring down traditional smoking we are on the brink of another public health crisis and there's debate about how harmful and but nobody nobody in the public health community is saying yeah, this I is great yeah i don't think there's any like there's no consensus yet for right. sure and there was just a study the other day that said um you know there's a possibility that having e-cigarettes out there actually makes fewer people quit tobacco altogether right. because they would just quit 
All right. Well, well, definitely more to come on this. I want to get to one more thing before we get to our extra credits. Um, There was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine this week on uh, bankruptcy and and, uh, medical bills causing bankruptcy. Margot, you wrote about this. It kind of turned over the conventional wisdom, didn't it? Yeah. So this was a study from a team at MIT and Northwestern. And it was actually a piece of a larger study that they published in an economics journal uh, about a month or two ago. And they, what they did is they looked at what happened to people when they went to the hospital. They asked this really simple question. If you're a person, you go to the hospital, what happens to your finances afterwards? And the most shocking thing that they found is among people in their 50s, if you go to the hospital, three years later, on average, you have a 20% lower income. And it stays low for up to six years. And so basically what they found is that going to the hospital is sort of like working for a mill that closes. Like some people will leave the hospital and they'll be fine. They'll go back to work. Nothing will change about their lives. Some people will, because they have a lot, take a long time recovering from a surgery, because they are a little bit disabled, whatever, they may have to work fewer hours or, go, or have a different kind of job that's less demanding. And some people will never work again. And I think it really, to me, totally turned on its head the way that we think about the effect of healthcare or health problems on people's financial health. I think the policy emphasis over the last decade has really been about getting health insurance, helping people to pay their medical bills. And what this study showed is that people who are uninsured, they have a lot of medical bills. They have a lot more medical bills than people who are insured, but that actually people who lost income were just so much worse off in so many other ways that the medical bills were not their biggest problem. And so it raises all of these interesting questions about what kinds of protections we ought to offer people when they get sick uh, to protect them against those kind of income shocks. So that's like one super counterintuitive, really like to me, paradigm changing uh, finding that they had. The other finding that they had is they In California, every single hospital discharge is, like, logged in a state database. And so they were able to get the state of California to let them look at this database and link each person who went to the hospital with credit reports. And it was all anonymized. I mean, they're never like, they don't know exactly who you are when this happened. But they were able to see someone goes to the hospital, they leave the hospital, what happened to their credit report? And really, for the first time ever, they were able to document true medical bankruptcies, people who would not have gone bankrupt except for their hospitalization. And the sort of uh, beautiful chart that they made where they're following these people through their credit reports month by month and where they hit bankruptcy really shows that you are at increased risk of bankruptcy if you go to the hospital If you're insured, you're at heightened risk because you could lose your job or cut back on your hours. If you're uninsured, you have even more risk because you also have all these medical bills that you may be unable to pay. But the magnitude of this effect was a lot smaller than some previous estimates, including a really famous one from Elizabeth Warren and some co-authors that also was was really influential, I think, in the public policy debate. Obama talked about it when they were passing the Affordable Care Act. There was this view that most bankruptcies were caused by medical problems. What these researchers say is actually it's probably about 5% of bankruptcies are caused exclusively by medical bills. Oh, you know, like hospital bills. Yeah, so they so they they acknowledge that hospital bills are probably an underestimate because there are people who may have other kinds of medical debts, but they did offer two thoughts to me that were useful on this point. One is that they don't see like the hospitalization is the thing. They think the hospitalization is essentially a signal that you're really sick. So people who are really sick who have a lot of medical bills probably end up in the hospital at some point. And the other thing that they said is that 
generally, a hospitalization is the kind of medical care that's most likely to result in debt, that if you don't have the money to pay for your prescription drug, you may not get that drug, and that could have health consequences for you. But you're unlikely to be able to buy the drug on credit, and so you're not going to have debts resulting from that kind of medical problem. A hospitalization, like they have to treat you, they send you the bill afterwards, and then you can really take on a lot of debt, and that can affect your chance of bankruptcy. But yeah, I think this, you know, their 5% is probably an underestimate, but it's really hard to get from 5% to 60%, I think. And so we do have to rethink it. Although it doesn't, I mean, this doesn't mean that medical debt and medical prices, medical bills are not a big problem, right? No. And, you know, I think like one of the big lessons that I've learned in thinking about the financial consequences of medical bills is that people's financial lives are really messy. And, you know, small bills can really throw them off. You know, something could really change your life in a very negative way without causing you to become bankrupt. And, you know, like, People who are sick, they may have other problems too, right? They're like trying to arrange, you know, transportation. They're, you know, I mean, anyone who's ever been sick and had some even very low level degree of disability related to their sickness understands that like the logistics and costs of life can really change a lot. And I think this 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 body of research was getting at that, getting at the ways that being sick really hurt you and can hurt your finances in ways that are way beyond just your kind of discrete medical bills that insurance can or can't pay for. No, I mean, a lot of the medical bills are small. I mean, a lot of the bills, the bill collections, I don't remember the statistics because I talked to somebody at the Consumer Financial Bureau, Financial Protection Bureau, whatever that one is. Um, A couple years ago, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but the the typical bill that people are having trouble with is like $250. It's not the hospital. It's everything else. Well, there's, you know, the famous statistic that that the vast majority of people don't have $400 in savings if they need it, you know, mostly considered like for a car repair. Which is, or a prescription drug. Or a prescription drug. Well, Margaret, I think the... what you were talking about, people's financial lives being so messy, reminded me of in your piece when it was forward looking about what do we do about this issue. It was like, do we need more insurance? Do we not health insurance? Or do you basically just have to throw a ton of money at it, right? If you're actually going to help it or are there ideas? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two sets of approaches. I mean, one is you could have government programs. So uh, the researchers compared what happens in Denmark. There's a study of Denmark. They just looked at people who are hospitalized for cardiac events. So it's it's a narrower group. People who go, you know go to the hospital for, for a heart attack in Denmark have a similar reduction in income to people in the U.S. But like half of it is made up for in social insurance because they have wage insurance and disability insurance and things like that, sick leave uh, in Denmark that cushion the blow. So You could have like a government program that basically insures people against wage loss. Uh, I think some economists think that could lead to some bad incentives because it might discourage people from going back to work who can if they can just sort of collect a government check for their lost wages. But that's one possible approach, something like the Danish system. Uh, You know, another system could be uh, something that's more employer based. Uh, You know, my employer, for example, offers short term disability insurance for its workers. And, you know, I broke my collarbone uh, a couple of months ago and I was really glad that that existed if I needed to take a couple of weeks off that I wasn't going to lose pay or lose my job as a result of that. So you could imagine that more employers might see these numbers and either want to offer that or you could imagine governments uh, requiring it. Sick leave, I think, is another thing. You know, sometimes you go to the hospital, you just need a couple of days to recover. And if your job is not uh, does not allow that, you could really just get pushed out the door. 
Well, I think we will talk more about this in the future, too. Um, okay, but we we're going to even have time to talk about um, President's opioid plan this that's week. Right. So put <laughs> it on the right. to-do list. Yes, on the to-do list. We're going to wrap things up today uh, with uh, the Everyone's Extra Credits. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry. We will post the links to all these pieces on the podcast page at khn.org. Joanne, you want to go first? This is a piece from Slate by a writer named uh, Alex Barish, or Barash, I don't know how he pronounces it, and it's the new spending bill could finally pave the way for federal research on gun violence, as Julie mentioned earlier, for 22 years, which is longer than this uh, writer says he has been alive. Um, the CDC has not been able to research gun violence the way we research car crashes and other public health threats. Um, this And the, 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 the spending bill that just passed it doesn't it, it it paves the way for it it does it doesn't get rid of the language but it it just asserts that go ahead and do it um it right was, basically the language is that that no research that advocates gun control right so and and secretary it, azar has came in you know another republican came in one of the first things that raised our eyebrows is when he said well that advocacy doesn't mean we can still do research about the health part of it you know we don't understand i mean there's a, I did I did ask him at an on the record press conference uh, whether he thought it should be a priority and how it should be funded or you know sort of like how do you operationalize that idea and he really backed away from it very quickly offering no specifics at all but this happened I mean, this just got in. So somebody gave a wink and a nod. It, it, it happened. I mean, this language is in there. So, I mean, we're having, obviously, a national debate right now about gun control or gun regulation or gun ownership or background checks or whatever. But there's also this public health piece. So we just There's a behavioral piece, and we don't research it. We don't know what there is that we don't know. So this article is about comparing it to other kinds of public health research and um, what we might be able to find out if it goes ahead. Can I just briefly plug a piece that I did with my uh, colleague, Kwok Chung Bui, um, we surveyed like 20 gun experts and we asked them if the CDC was going to fund gun research, what are the questions that you don't know the answer to that you think are the most important? And that piece was somewhat inspired by our conversation on this topic a couple of weeks ago. And there were just some, some really interesting answers. And But the, the most popular answer among gun researchers was they want to understand how criminals get their guns, that there's essentially no research into what happens. You know, we know what happens when someone buys the gun. We know what happens when it's recovered at a crime scene. We don't know how it gets from A to B. So that's like one example of something that could be studied. Right. Anna. Um, this is an article in STAT um, called The Anxious Launch of Lexterna, a gene therapy with a record sticker price. Um, it's by Eric Boudman. And I found it fascinating. Um, there are a lot of, uh, there's obviously a lot of talk out there about drug pricing. Um, this is a $425,000 drug um, just, you know, for, it's it's to help um, with keep kids or keep people with a certain um, genetic mutation from going blind. And so this is, you know, it, it Eric was able to sit in on the first um, time this has ever been used because it was just recently approved. And so you get to walk through kind of the parents um, wanting to get their 13-year-old boy this drug, but you also get to see uh, the doctors and the nurses dealing with this vial of $425,000 of medication. <laughs> exactly. And then what they do with it. I mean, it, it's just fascinating how they get, I mean, you're not just injecting it in the eye and walking away. I mean, this is a huge process. And I was actually, I mean, I was literally like on the edge of my seat while I'm, I'm reading this. Um, so it's good. Oh, miracles of modern medicine. Margo. I wanted to recommend a podcast from one of our uh, 
you know, co-panelist uh, Sarah Cliff and her colleague Ezra Klein talking about a very controversial paper on uh, naloxone access laws. And this was sort of a crazy tempest uh, in the health policy world where we saw a lot of economists and public health people fighting over this paper and how it should be interpreted and also uh, quite a lot of sort of nasty and unkind uh, vitriol directed at the researchers. And naloxone, we should point out, is one of the drugs used to treat opioid addiction. Yeah, so it's a it's a drug that's used when you're having when someone is having an opioid overdose. It reverses the overdose. Uh, so it's seen as a drug that potentially can be life-saving to people at the moment that they're overdosing, but it doesn't provide any ongoing treatment for them. It doesn't cure their addiction. It just keeps them from dying. And so there's a question about the degree to which introducing this drug is reducing the death rate from drug overdose deaths. And there's a, there was a whole fight about this paper. And uh, I thought this podcast did a nice job of talking about the paper, talking about the debate, and helping us better understand how we might think about the value of this particular drug in the arsenal of things uh, that can address the opioid epidemic. Okay. Um, Mine is from my KHN colleague, Anna Ibarra. It's called For Dreamers, the Dream to Become a Doctor is Now at the Mercy of Courts. It's about the hundred or so medical students who were brought to the U.S. undocumented as children. This past week was match day, something else we didn't get to talk about, when fourth-year medical students are matched with residency programs where they will train for their specialties. It's already fraught. I know I've been on Twitter with a lot of people who didn't get their choices. Um, But even more so for these students who don't even know if they'll be able to continue to work in this country. It's a really thought-provoking piece. Um, so that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Sanger Katz. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.